Um, couples dinner coming up. Uh, February 10th, 6.30 here at the church. I have a pastor, uh, Jason Powell. He is the uh, youth pastor from Harvest Christian Fellowship. Uh, coming out here to share uh, at a couple's dinner. He's just a, a neat, I mean, he's married, he's got a kid, and, and just a neat guy. I know his father-in-law from many years back when we were together at Harvest. And so uh, we got them coming out uh, for, the, for the couple's dinner. And so I want to make sure, I want to open up the couple's dinner to all couples, not just married couples. So, you know, you want to come, you're not married, you want to find a date, come out to the couple's dinner. And, and uh, although, you know, you Kind of scary if you're going to take a first date to a couple's dinner, but, but, you know, but it's welcome. You're welcome to that. And so I want to open up for that. And then, um, so that's coming up. And then a quick praise report. Uh, Tracy's mom, uh, over here, Tracy Stowe, her mom, they found a tumor in her large intestine and, uh, they found it to be cancerous. And so they, uh, went ahead and they, they removed the tumor and then they're going to do a complete body scan, but it was like they were waiting like, Three weeks, you know, with the, with the way the hospital worked and everything, didn't know, didn't know what was going on. Finally, did the body scan, then had to wait a week for the uh, results, and uh, and said that there was like absolutely no cancer anyplace else in her entire body. And so that's just just praise the Lord, absolutely. <laughs> Tracy told her mom, "Hey, you're on the prayer list. We were praying for you." And sure enough, let me tell you guys that that prayer list works. And so praise the Lord for that. Okay, Isaiah chapter 10, uh, let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Father, we thank you for this night tonight. We praise you for Tracy's mom and the healing touch that you had upon her life. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity for Jason to come out and his wife Mary for our couples and to pray your blessing upon him and the study he's prepared and the, the travel and all those plans for that, Lord. And now tonight, Lord, our focus is on you, Lord, your word. We pray your blessing upon our time together as we look to your word and your prophet Isaiah and the things you've given him to share and to prophesy and how we know, Lord, that it was for a time back then, but also, Lord, for a future fulfillment as well. And so we thank you for this exciting section of scripture that you've given to us this evening. Bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you recall last time together, we left off with the warning coming against the Assyrian invasion, rather the coming Assyrian invasion against Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. And we looked at, I think it was in chapter 8, that the invasion was going to be like, like a flood. Chapter 8, verse 5, Isaiah predicted, The waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria, and all his glory, he will go up over the channels and go over all the banks. In other words, the Assyrian army, they're going to come down, they're going to take both Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel, and just, just overwhelm them, take them, you know, and that, which indeed that happened. God was going to use the Assyrians to bring judgment to the northern kingdom of Israel. But the Lord had been warning Israel over and over again to turn from their sin and turn back to Him, but they just wouldn't listen. So now we come to chapter 10, and Isaiah points out just why this judgment is coming. Look at verses 1 through 4. Isaiah says, Woe to those who decree unrighteousness decrees, who write misfortune, which they have prescribed, to rob the needy of justice, and to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. What will you do in the day of punishment and the, the desolation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your glory? Without me they shall bow down among the prisoners, and they shall fall among the slain. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. 
Isaiah is saying, because of all these things, all these works of unrighteousness, judgment is coming. But God's hand is still out. He's still his own. But if you just turn, if you just turn, uh, he could stop this at any time. But he says, woe to you, Israel, for the decrees of unrighteousness that you have done. Now read that, and I definitely see a correlation between what Isaiah is saying is going on in, in, in the justice system of his time and what we see going on in the justice system of our time. Our justice system should mirror the justice of God, but they don't. Isaiah says there, there are those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune which they have prescribed. And when you have a Supreme Court of the United States decreeing the, 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 the legalization of same-sex marriage, you have an unrighteous decree. Same thing that, that, that uh, Isaiah is, is crying out against. See, God is dealing with principles here. And uh, until a judge represents God, he cannot represent the people. And we've gotten so far from this in our own country. I pray that newest Supreme Court pick Judge Neil Gorsuch We've one, one that seeks God's will and above everything else. And we need to be praying for him. But there's another problem with these unrighteous decrees. You know, we have a past president that, that, you know, that said we should have open borders that allows anybody to come into our country. Listen, that's dangerous. We are all sorts of things going on in, in the news today. And I'm sure you've caught it all that with the immigration and the poor and the needy and all these protests in airports and everything else. Our president, the current president, has been accused of putting a ban on Muslims in our country, and yet that hasn't been the case at all. He was putting a ban on people coming into our country from countries that want to do us harm. There's nothing wrong with wanting to protect our borders. I like what one person posted on social media. Not taking in Syrian refugees or closing our borders isn't mean or heartless. I lock the doors in my house every night. I don't lock them because I hate the people outside my house. I lock them because I love the people inside my house. But at the same time, there's nothing wrong with wanting to help refugees. There's not, nothing wrong with wanting to help the homeless because of their destruction of their own countries. Isaiah even says so here. The reason Israel was about to be judged was because they, they robbed the needy of justice. They've taken what is right from the poor. Widows are their prey and they robbed the fatherless. In other words, instead of helping the poor, the widows and the fatherless, Isaiah says they were robbing from them. God says, don't you know I see what you're doing? This is one of many reasons why I'm going to judge you. Here's my point. I, I believe we definitely need to help those that are seeking refuge in our country. And as Christians, we are clearly taught in the Bible to care for the poor, for the fatherless, the, the, the widows. We need to do all that we can for them, like the Good Samaritan, as Jesus shared about. I think about the Good Samaritan, and he helped that stranger, picked him up, brought him into an inn, paid his bill, helped him for his recovery, but he didn't take him into his own home. See, our, our job is to show God's love and compassion. And I believe the best way to help is to reach out and help those people in their own countries where they're at. Franklin Graham brought this up, and I agree. He says, I think the establishment of safe zones, safe zones inside Syria and Iraq would be, that would be protected by the international community until a political solution is found is perfect. And I agree. Here's the bottom line. We need to pray for political solutions that would bring peace and allow them to return to their homes as they desire. Now back in verse 5, we see now that God was using the nation of Assyria to judge Israel. But that doesn't mean that God was not going to judge Assyria. Look at verses 5 through 12. He says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation, and against the people of my wrath I will give him charge. 
to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Yet he does not mean uh, so, nor does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations. For he says, Are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Kano like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria, as I have done to Samaria and her idols, shall I not do also to Jerusalem and her idols? Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. In other words, the Lord is going to use the Assyrian Empire to bring this final judgment down upon the northern kingdom. He describes them in verse 5 as the rod of my anger. It's the same way that God describes in Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 35, that he placed his sword in the hand of the king of Babylon in order to judge the nation of Judah. Now, there are those people that are out there that like to have the sword of God's judgment in their hands, you know, the, the rod of God's anger to hold, God's anger to hold on to. Now, they, re, they read Romans twelve nineteen that says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And they say, well, I want to be about the Lord's business. You know, I'm, I'm going to take care of that. In other words, some people think that they're, they're God's instruments of wrath upon his disobedient people. Much like the, you know, the Westboro Baptist Church folks. But here's the thing they, they don't know. Every instrument of God's wrath always subsequently experiences God's wrath themselves. The prophet's writings are full of such warnings. Here, God is saying, woe to Assyria. Yet, yes, God acknowledges that he's going to use them to, to judge, bring judgment against wicked Israel, but they viewed themselves with so much pride and, and arrogance and believed that they had risen to power because of their own strength. In fact, look at verses 13 and 14. For he says, that is the Syria that says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent. Also I have removed the boundaries of the people and have robbed their treasury, so I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. My hand has found like a nest the riches of the people, and as one gathers eggs that are left, I have gathered all the earth, and there was no one who has moved, moved his wing nor opened his mouth with even a peep. And in fact, the Syria, they weren't going to stop with Israel. They were heading down for, to, to Judah as well, and they were saying, nothing is going to stop us now. And yet, that wasn't God's plan because Judah had not gone down that far yet in their sin. Israel had, but it wasn't time for judgment against Judah. And yet Assyria, in their pride, came to Jerusalem shouting these blasphemies to the people of the city, even though God said they were going to destroy. But listen to Second Kings chapter 18. This is verses 32 to 35. It's in the New Living Translation, as the Assyrians are shouting to the people about their God, the good king Hezekiah, uh, he's there, and, and so, um, and, he, and he's telling the people, don't worry about the Assyrians that are out there. He says this in verse 32, the, the Assyrians are saying, don't listen to Hezekiah when he tries to mislead you by saying, the Lord will rescue us. Have the gods of any other nations ever saved their people from the king of Assyria? What happened to the gods of Hamath and Arpad? And what about the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Iva. Did any god rescue Samaria from my power? What god of any nation has ever been able to save its people from my power? So what makes you think that the Lord can rescue Jerusalem from me? So the king of Assyria, the Assyrian army, they're outside of Jerusalem. They're saying, man, you know, you're, you're not going to stand against us. Your god is no god at all to us. And, and they're boasting about their accomplishments as, as they did on their own. And, and, and uh, that, that the one true god of Judah had no power over them. 
So look back at Isaiah in verses 15 through 19. He says, Shall the axe boast against itself against him who chops with it? Or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up, or if a staff could lift up as if it were not wood. Therefore the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will send leanness among his fat ones, and under his glory he will kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. So the light of Israel will be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame. It will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day, and it will consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body. And there will be as when a sick man wastes away, then the rest of the trees of this forest will be so few in number that a child may write them. Verse 15, Isaiah says, Shall the axe boast against it itself with, the, with him who chops it, or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? In other words, what God has done in using Assyria is using them as a tool. They have no room to boast. I love that. I mean, if, if someone chops a cord of wood for you, do you go to the axe and thank the axe? And, oh man, not thank you axe for doing all that work. You know, or, or if you go have a great meal in a restaurant, you know, and do you thank the plate that it was served on? No, you thank the, the chef. In the same way, everything we do for the Lord, we can't take credit for. He is the one working in our lives. He is the one working through our lives. If it weren't for Him, we'd be nothing. Just an axe sitting on the ground. And all that we have as Christians is not because of anything we have done. It's all what God has done in our lives. It's all about God's grace. You can't earn it. We certainly don't deserve it. But it's been given to us through the sacrifice that Jesus made upon the cross. No matter of good works can make us right with God. It's what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. You know, you know and praise should be given to Him. So now here we have the Assyrians. They boasted in what they have done. They boasted that they're going to take Jerusalem in the process. And they boasted that they were greater than any, any other gods. So what happened? Well, according to Second Kings chapter 19, when Hezekiah, king of Judah, heard all these threats, Hezekiah poured his heart out before the Lord, and the Lord answered in Second Kings 19.34 and said, Don't worry about it, Tom paraphrased. And that night, 185,000 Assyrians were surrounding Jerusalem. It seemed as though the Jews didn't have a chance, but they did have a prayer. The Lord sent one angel to go through the camp of the Assyrians, and in one night, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers died. Wiped them out. God prevailed. Now, it's always interesting to me to realize that what one angel can do in one night, because I remember the statement Jesus made when Peter drew his sword to defend the Lord. Remember that? I'll defend you, Lord. And pull out his sword. Now, always a mistake when we go to defend the Lord. I mean, the day the Lord needs my defense, we're in big trouble. But Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 26, Put away your sword. Don't you know I could call 12 legions of angels? Now, think about this. If one angel could kill 185,000 Assyrians, 12 legions, 48,000 angels, could certainly make a much greater impact, I think. You know, and, and could easily have stopped the events from happening that... that that uh, had Jesus refused to go to the cross. Jesus said, I don't want to go to the cross. Angels, wipe them out. All that to say, the power was there, but Jesus endured it for us. He submitted himself into the will of the Father and he paid the price that, that you and I might have redemption, that we might have the forgiveness of our sins, that we might be able to dwell with him in eternity forever. What tremendous love he has for us. 
So here again, in verses 5 through 19, God promised to, to devastate the Assyrian Empire, and ultimately he would use the Babylonians to do it completely. But again, that wouldn't come until after God uses the Assyrians to, to judge the northern kingdom of Israel. And so we pick it up in verse 20, with God promising that he would not wipe out Israel completely, but there would be a remnant that would return to the Lord. Look in verse 20. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel... And such as have escaped in the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Notice that phrase, in that day. It has a, a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment when we look at prophetically through Scripture in the book of Isaiah. In that day speaks of the day of the Lord prophetically. The day that the, the day of the Lord is the, the day of the great tribulation period when the judgment of God is poured out upon a Christ rejecting sinful world. Midway through that great tribulation period, the people of Israel will no longer depend on him who defeated them, as verse 20 says. That's a reference to the Antichrist. See, up until this point, the Jews have been deceived by the Antichrist. Uh, who, when he comes to power, he makes a covenant with the nation of Israel, whereby he helps them to rebuild their temple. And because he helps them to rebuild their temple, they think that he is the, the Messiah until he demands to be worshipped as God in that temple there, which is called the abomination of desolation in the holy place, as spoken of by the prophet of Daniel. It's then that the Jews realize that the real Messiah is Jesus Christ, and they will turn to the Lord Jesus, but then they're told to flee. Flee to the wilderness. Don't even stop at your house to get your coat. Get out of here. So the remnant that flees from Jerusalem will no more again trust the Antichrist, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Then in verses 21, rather 22 23, read, For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. In that great and terrible day of the Lord, many people will, will be destroyed through the judgment that comes upon this earth. And though the remnant of the Jews will be scattered throughout the world, they will return to Israel by the masses. Verse 24 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. Again, that Assyrian not only speaks of the literal Assyrians of that day, but in this passage, it's another name for the Antichrist, the coming world ruler. He says, He shall strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you in the manner of Egypt. Again, according to Revelation 13, midway through the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist will suddenly turn against Israel and seek to destroy her, just as Pharaoh did before. Well, then we read in verses 25 through 34. For yet a very little while, and the indignation will cease, as will my anger in their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him, like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. As his rod was on the sea, so will he lift up his manor in the manner of Egypt. It shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. He has come to Ayath, he has passed Migron, at Michmash, he has attended to his, his equipment, they have gone along the ridge, they have taken up the lodging at Geba, Ramah is afraid, Gibeah of Saul has fled, lift up your voice, O daughter of, of Galim, cause it to be heard as far as Laish, O poor Anathoth, Madmena has fled, the inhabitants of Geban seek refuge, and yet he will remain at Nob that day. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will lop off the bow with terror. Those of high stature will be hewn down, and the haughty will be humbled. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. 
So these cities here that are listed were, were on the path that the Assyrians took to carry the ten northern tribes to captivity. But because it's a section that also talks about in that day, that's also a map of, of the route that the Antichrist will take to enter Israel for that final battle of Armageddon. The same path that says in that day the nations will be cut down. In that day the people in rebellion against the Lord will be destroyed. I mean, it's a, a dreadfully dark and depressing picture. And, and that's why I'm so glad we have time to go into chapter 11 tonight. Because this is so dim and so dark and so bleak. But verse 1 of chapter 11, man, our hero appears. I mean, if this were a movie, the music would have just changed from this scary, depressing Darth Vader, dun, 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 to, to, the, to, to the hero music, dun, 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 you know, it's Superman. But here it is, look, look, at, look at verse 1. There shall come forth a rod for the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Oh, man. As the nations are cut down, suddenly a branch springs up. Now, Jesse, we know, was David's father. Therefore, the rod speaks of David. But you recall that the Lord promised David that his descendants would be on the throne forever, ultimately speaking of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The notice this word branch right there. It's capitalized. It's actually the Hebrew word Netzer, N-E-T-S-E-R, from where we get our word Nazareth from. Now, Nazareth was that small town, you know, the area of northern area of Israel where Joseph and Mary raised Jesus. And in fact, Matthew chapter 2, we read that when Joseph and Mary went into that region, it was done to fulfill prophecy seen here in Isaiah that he would be called a Nazarene. So again, this is a prophecy of the end of the great tribulation period. Jesus will return and usher in the millennial reign of Christ, that thousand year time period where Jesus will rule and reign in righteousness. So you could say that verse 1 says, There shall come forth from the line of Jesse, David's father, a Nazarene, the descendant of David, none other than Jesus Christ himself. It goes on to look at verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, though many are not aware of it, this passage actually cleans, cleans up and clears up some confusion found in Revelation chapter 1, 3, 4, and 5. In those chapters, it talks about the seven spirits of God. And that has confused many people. When they read Revelation 4, verse 5, seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God and of the Lamb. Or Revelation 5, 6, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. And, and they come up with all sorts of weird ideas. It's really strange ideas as to what that means. But in reality, the seven spirits of God are explained fully right here in verse 2. We know that the number seven is a picture of completeness, often, often refers to one complete thing. So I think a better way to see those Revelation passages is to look at them as a sevenfold spirit of God, as in verse 2. Number one, the spirit of the Lord that, that spoke the world into existence. Number two, the spirit of wisdom. And he gave Solomon, the wisest man of all time, wisdom, the spirit of understanding, which he gives to those who come to Christ. The natural man doesn't understand the things of the spirit. The spirit of counsel. He's the, the wonderful counselor, mighty God. He's the spirit of strength, it says there. Who, I mean, who, who gave Samson his strength, you know, enabled him to break ropes and bound to him, but, but also who empowers us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to, to be a witness for Christ. Number six, he's the spirit of knowledge. Teaches us all things, brings to our remembrance all the things that Jesus said. Finally, number seven, he's the spirit of the fear of the Lord. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. All these seven things are in, embodied in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the sevenfold spirit of God. 
Now, when Jesus returns, he will judge the world with righteousness. Look at verses 3 through 5. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. So when Jesus Christ returns, sits upon his throne during the millennial reign of of Christ for that thousand years, he's going to be the first king in all of history to have the advantage of knowing exactly what is in every man's heart, in in their thoughts. I mean, imagine a judge in a case trying to figure out if a man is guilty or innocent. And they, they do this by, you know, determining the facts presented to them. When, you know, when Jesus sits on his throne, he knows men's hearts. You know, he knows what they're thinking, what they did. And so when Jesus makes a judgment, it's not going to be based on what he's heard or what he's seen. It's based on what, based on what he knows. And he will judge in righteousness. Verse 5 says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Nobody can say to Jesus, oh, but you don't understand. It wasn't my fault. I, I, I didn't want to do, you know. No, I see your heart. Man, you're guilty. I think the same thing is true for the last days when people stand before the Lord. No one will be able to say, but Jesus, you don't know. Didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I prophesy in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Why? Because he knows man's hearts. I'm thinking about this. By all accounts, Judas was convincing of what he did and said he had everybody full except Jesus. Jesus knew the real Judas, that he was betraying him. Well, Isaiah goes on in verse 6 with one of the most misquoted verses of our time. Look at verses 6 through 9. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. Then they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covered the sea. Now, I've heard this passage misquoted. I'm sure you have many, many times. People say that during the millennial reign of Christ, the lion will lie down with the lamb. Right? Have you guys all heard that? The lion's going to lie down with the lamb. Well, look, it says that in reality, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Not a lion. Now, fortunately, it doesn't do any harm in the verse because the whole idea is that there's not going to be any violence. In the, in the, in the millennial, animals are no longer carnivores. Bears and lions will be eating grass and, and bushes and leaves and, and snakes, cobras, vipers, then kids can even play with them. Now, to me, that's just creepy. I don't know about you. That's just creepy. I don't know if even during the millennium I would want to do that. Huh? I'll stick my hands in a viper because I can do that. I don't think so. I'd have someone else do. You, you go first. But here's the, the cool thing. The earth is going to be like it was before the fall. In fact, when, when Peter was preaching to the multitudes in Acts 3.21, he says this concerning Jesus Christ, that he was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. That phrase, until the time of restoration of all things, speaks of the millennial reign of Christ. The restoration of all things. And again, apparently it's going to return to exactly the way it was before the flood, before sin entered into the world. Could you imagine how cool that will be? And then verse 10, our hero appears again. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, 
and his resting place shall be glorious. That term resting place there often refers to the temple that God inhabits. So there's going to be a millennial temple is what we're reading. Not the millennial falcon. That's something altogether different. In fact, the, the psalmist calls the temple a resting place. Psalm 132 verses 7 through 9 says this. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place. You are in the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. So again, in this case, that resting place refers to the millennial temple. And Ezekiel, and, and when we studied Ezekiel a while back, he spent a great time dealing with the details of this temple and how incredible it's going to be. And it's no wonder because Jesus is going to be in that temple himself. Listen to Zechariah 6, verse 12. It says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, there's that word branch again, from his place he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And all the people of the earth will gather there to hear from him. Remember that Isaiah told us that back in Isaiah chapter 2. Remember we are talking about the millennial reign of Christ back then in chapter 2 verse 3. It says, And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So we see this whole picture of the Lord and his temple, the millennial reign of Christ. Look at verse 11. And it shall come to pass in that day, now this is the millennial reign of Christ again, that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathos and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and he will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together this, the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The program of the kingdom is to restore Israel. We've seen the first gathering there in 1948 when Israel became a nation. But the Lord is saying there's going to be a second gathering and he's going to pull the Jews from all the four corners of the earth to reestablish the land of Israel. Look at, look at verse 13 now. So Ephraim uh, is another name for, for the ten north tribes. That following Solomon's reign, um, I skipped 13. I don't have 13 in my, my, my notes. What does 13 say? Read 13, Lisa. Okay, that's what I was going to say. That's verse 13 there. <laughs> I, I didn't put in my, my notes. I don't know what. I wrote what I was going to say about it. Ephraim, that's another name for the ten northern tribes. See, following Solomon's reign, the civil war took place in Israel. The kingdom age, however, that division will be obliterated as Israel is united. So what it's saying is, during the millennial reign, Israel is going to be united once again. Every Ephraim uh, is, is no longer going to be separate. Now we'll look at verse 14. I have this. But they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines towards the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and the people of Ammon shall obey them. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. With his mighty wind, he will shake his fist over the river and strike it in the seven streams and make men cross over dry shot. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria, as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. So we look at this in, in the future look. The Jews have survived the genocidal attempt of the Antichrist. God's going to bring them together, gather them to the God. He will bring that remnant from every place in the earth, clearing a path for them the same way that he opened up the Red Sea for them to pass. 
He will assemble them together and give them his protection. They will receive the promised land with his full borders. No one will be allowed to oppress them any longer. So, what will Israel's response be when all this happens? The, the, the Jews are brought back together. They're in the reign of Christ. Look at verse 12 and we'll close with this. And in that day, you will say, O oh Lord, I will praise you. Though you were, rather, chapter 12. In that day, you will say, O oh Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah the Lord is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And in that day you will say, Praise the Lord, call upon His name, declare His deeds among the peoples, make mention that His name is exalted. Again, in that day, He's referring to the millennial reign again of Christ. The day of the Lord opened with the night of sin, the night of, of darkness, God's wrath being poured out on the Christ-rejecting world. You know, our day, you know, we begin at sunrise, but in the day in the Old Testament, that began with sundown. Psalm 30, verse 5 tells us, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. The time of the millennium is going to be that, that joy in the morning, the time of thanksgiving to God for the fact that He's our strength and our song, and He's become our salvation as we read here. It's a time to thank Him for our salvation. Therefore, it says, Drink from the wells of the joy of our salvation. Then we don't have to wait to, for the millennium to do that. You know, we can do it today. Do as Isaiah says, look at verses 5 and 6. Sing to the Lord, for He has done excellent things. This is known on all the earth. Cry out and shout, O inhabitants of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. Now what a beautiful picture of the kingdom to come. You know, they're just, man, they're, they're, man, they're just singing praises to the Lord, worshiping the Lord as God is, is brings up. So as dark as it gets, Outside, as dark as our world is right now, and as we see, it's going to get darker. It's always darker before, before the, the dawn. Uh, we know that the Lord has got great things in store for us as his people. And so with that, let's, let's close. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night tonight, Lord. We thank you for your word. Father, there's so much to be hopeful for, so much to be looking forward to, Lord God, as you come and you pull your church off of this earth, Lord. And you take us to be with you. Lord, and you'll rule and reign for that thousand years. And your word tells us that we will rule and reign with you. What a joyful time that would be, Lord. And so, Lord, as we wait for that day, we want to praise you. We want to thank you. We want to worship you for our salvation. We want to drink from the wells of joy, Lord, the joy of our salvation, Lord. We want to, uh, Lord, just continue to praise you with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole soul. Lord, we thank you for the work that you've done in us, Lord. And Lord, we pray that you'd use us now to reach this world. Lord, as your word says that you've still put your hand out towards Israel and towards Judah, you were still there ready to forgive them, ready to heal their land if they would just turn to you, Lord. I know that today, Lord, you still have that hand outstretched to the world today, longing for them to turn to you, turn from their sin. And we do pray for those that we know, Lord. We pray for the lost and our community, and our families, Lord, we pray that they return to you, Lord, that you would use us, Lord, as that tool, as that instrument, not to bring destruction, Lord, but to bring hope and to bring you into their lives, Lord. We thank you for your grace and love in our own lives. Pray your blessing upon our, our evening, Lord, our fellowship time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and we'll do one last song together.